Counter Narrative, a podcast about multicultural heritage collections, storytelling, and representation in galleries, libraries, archives, museums, and beyond. This podcast is a part of a larger project to highlight the work of the Andrew W. Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellows based at the Rare Book School. I'm your host, Rachel E. Winston, and this episode of the pod is titled, We Were Never Silent, Language as Counter-Narrative. We'll be talking about remarkable items in the collections that we steward and how they embody voices of those less heard or listened to in the U.S. In part two of this two-part episode, we'll be talking with Dale Correa and Suzanne M. We'll also bring back all of our guests for some exciting discussion. To get us started, Dale, can you tell us about yourself and what material you selected to talk about? Thank you, Rachel. Um, Hi there. My name is Dale J. Correa, and I'm the Middle Eastern Studies Librarian and History Coordinator for the University of Texas Libraries at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, And for this segment, I've chosen to focus on the magazine Colem, which was issued in Ottoman Turkish and French beginning in 1908 um, of the Common Era. Uh, UT Austin's collections contain a remarkable number of periodicals from the early 20th century Middle East, including several that are multilingual like this one. A column had been a prominent satirical or mizah gazette, but it was eventually shut down in 1911 because of its criticism of Sultan Abdul Hamid II and the reigning Ottoman political administration of the time. The magazine communicates not only through its essays and news coverage, but also through its vivid satirical imagery and its bilingualism, which is what I'd like to talk about today. I chose this particular magazine because it's fairly unique as a bilingual satirical periodical from this time period. Um, Ottoman satirical gazettes were primarily in Ottoman Turkish, um, even though a good portion of the population was um, illiterate, the magazines like this were still fairly well circulated um, and appreciated. In particular, this magazine, Kalem, claimed 10 to 13,000 readers in the first several weeks of its publication. Um, more significantly, those who were illiterate were nevertheless engaging with this magazine and others through the cartoons. Um, usually in larger social environments like coffee houses or markets where the magazine could be passed from hand to hand and they could share the cartoons. Um, and so I'll take us through a number of um, significant cartoons from Kalem um, to talk about how they're a form of language and expression beyond the magazine's already unique bilingualism. Um, so Kalem was launched by Jalal Esad Arsavan, um, who was the son of a pasha, so part of the Ottoman aristocracy. Um, And he was educated in the modern military and government schools in Istanbul. Um, And he really exemplifies the Western educated Ottoman journalist coming from this military or bureaucratic class. His career was also tied very intimately to the success of the new constitutional regime. Um, And so Kalem was also fairly sophisticated um, for its time period in keeping with its founder's own sophistication and uh, um, attention to sort of modern developments and modern improvements um, for um, publishing. Um, And so it actually uh, printed some of its cartoons in color, which was um, fairly rare for the time period. Although it is unique for its bilingualism, the cartoons and the artists, uh, um, those who were actually drawing the cartoon and creating that material, came from 
all levels of society kind of ran the gamut um, from, you know, really um, elaborate and sophisticated analysis to rather crude jokes. You have this range within a text that's also highly elitist. Um, in its own way as well. The column, as I said, it began in 1908, particularly in September 1908. And this was only like less than two months following the Young Turk Revolution that ushered in the second constitutional era of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and I mentioned Jalal Assad Arsaban already, um, but his uh, co-editor director was Salah Jimjoz. And when they opened the magazine, they did so with a provocative cartoon um, that shows an upper level Ottoman official sweeping clean the front steps of the Ministry of Education of its former bureaucrats. So he's, he's got a broom and he's actually sweeping away these former bureaucrats. And this is all in the context of the Young Turk Revolution, as I said. So we've got this revolution that's setting the Ottoman Empire on a path towards reforms for so-called modernization. Um, and that very much followed a model of westernization. Um, a week later, Kalem prints a cartoon featuring an old man carrying the Ottoman flag, um, followed by a man of similar age holding the hand of a young boy. Um, in the cartoon, the young boy asks, who is that old gentleman? To which his father, or perhaps grandfather, it's not particularly clear, responds, that's a young Turk, my son. Uh, the cartoon speaks to the intergenerational, interclass tension of the Young Turk Revolution and the reforms being introduced to the Ottoman Empire, in addition to the magazine's simpler delight in mocking the older so-called Young Turks these young Turks were no longer young by this time period. There's another figure that often recurs um, in these cartoons, um, and his name was Reza Telfik Bey. Um, he was often called um, the Felisuf, the philosopher. Um, and he had trained to be a medical doctor. He was a pugilist, wrestler, Bektashi community leader, Freemason, and he spoke English, French, Italian, Albanian, Armenian, Persian, Arabic, and Turkish. He was also an Ottoman political writer, um, and poet and had the very unfortunate luck of being selected for the Turkish delegation of signatories to the Treaty of Sevres, which um, spelled the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War One. Um, he was also a member of the Committee of Union and Progress, which was the constitutional government um, that took over after the um, Young Turk Revolution. In spite of all these accomplishments <laughs> and everything that he had done with the Committee of Union and Progress, he actually became really disillusioned with a lot of this um, earlier than his peers did. Um, he was a wild popular figure in Istanbul society at the time of um, this magazine. Um, and there are two images in particular that I wanted to mention. In one, he's instrumentalized as a symbol of the new wave of modernization, hope for constitutionalism, and a mockery of all that came before. In this particular cartoon, which is titled A Natural History Lesson, given by Dr. Reza Tilfikbe, Reza Tilfikbe is made to say, Gentlemen, these animals that you see are the most terrible of the quaternary period. They ate 100 times more than the elephants of today. There remains only their fossils. Now the animals to which he refers are a collection of Ottoman officials who had been overthrown in the Young Turk Revolution. And in the cartoon, they are shown stuffed and positioned in a museum exhibition case. So Reza Tolfik, uh, who had been born in what is now Bulgaria and educated in Beirut and Istanbul, is representing all that the future could hold for a modernized, already cosmopolitan Ottoman Empire. And he's also representing the elitism that threatened the tentative alliance between the Revolutionary Political Party, Committee of Union and Progress, with secularist, lower socioeconomic class political parties. In the second and last 
image that I'll talk about is um, Reza Tofik again. He's swinging upside down on a trapeze. He's grasping the hands of his colleague Salim Sir as the latter flies through the air. Um, it's really a great image. So Reza Telfik's reputation for brash confidence, as I mentioned, he was a pugilist and a wrestler and et cetera, et cetera. This is all reflected in um, his dismissal in the cartoon of Salim Sir's protestations that the trapeze may not hold them both. Um, Reza Telfik was known for his physical as well as intellectual acumen. Um, in the cartoon, he's rendered with certain stereotypically masculine traits, such as strong arms, a broad chest, muscular thighs, and thick black hair on his head as his mustache, and even indicated in his underarms. And all of this reinforces contemporary notions of the ideal Turkish man. Both this image and the previous one um, that was set in a museum represent Reza Tofik Bey at a dangerous intersection of model male and threatening elite. Now, those are just um, a few examples of the, the wonderful satirical cartoons from this magazine. Um, but I hope that goes to demonstrate um, how cartoons and imagery can communicate um, just as much, if not more, than words themselves. Thank you, Dale. What an important historical record. Now, from the Ottoman Empire, to China. Hi, Suzanne. Can you tell us about yourself and about the material you chose to talk about today? Hello, um, my name is Suzanne M. and I recently joined the University of California Irvine Libraries as the curator for the Southeast Asian Archive. And what I will be focusing on today is a work that is actually held at the Los Angeles Public Library, where I formerly uh, served as the senior librarian for digitization and special collections. It's called uh, The Chinese and English Instructor, uh, published in 1862 by Tong Ting Ku. Um, and um, Travel and Exploration is uh, a collection focus at LAPL, um, so this is from that. Tom Tinku, uh, he spent three years compiling this six-volume book, The Chinese English Instructor, and it includes Cantonese phonetic notations of English, pidgin English, actually. Um, so um, this body of text is the biggest uh, single collection of Chinese pidgin English in existence. Um, and it is considered the country's first Chinese English dictionary. And uh, Tong, he, um, who compiled this, he was a Chinese merchant. And in traditional Chinese society, the merchant class was considered the lowest um, in the Chinese social hierarchy. Um, and many of them had little or no formal education. Tong was an exception. And uh, he, as a boy, went to uh, Morrison Mission School in Hong Kong and he was highly praised for his proficiency in English. And um, he you know, started out working uh, for the colonial Hong Kong government because of that. Um, and um, in addition to going on to work as a salesman, a traveling salesman. So around this time, there was large foreign community in the old Canton city. Um, so it was multinational. And uh, one of the big challenges was uh, for traders to find a common language uh, to communicate with 
the, the Chinese locals. There were economic, social, and political factors that contribute to the rise of Pidgin English, Chinese Pidgin English, and it became a bridge language. So a bridge language um, is like actually a third language that arises from between two groups of people who don't share a native language. Um, and it's distinct from, you know, Chinese and English. And um, it's based on Cantonese. A lot of merchants are Cantonese. Um, and Cantonese is mainly an oral language itself. Um, it's a very colloquial language. Um, and it has a lot of slang and non-standard usage. And in addition to traders and uh, merchants, there were also interpreters and domestic servants um, who worked for foreigners who spoke pidgin English. So they relied on works like this. Um, as well as others that were, you know, that came before uh, the Chinese English um, instructor um, that were you know, cheaply made, you know, made by commoners for commoners. This uh, particular work, um, it's done, um, it's put together in a, like a stitch thread binding. It uses movable types because movable type by this, by this time had become pretty popular in China. You know, it's an example of, I chose it because um, it's, you know, this documentary evidence um, about the language created by ordinary people. I chose this work because Chinese Pidgin English was used by such a large population of people. It enabled, you know, individual businessmen to become uh, like rich and influential, such as Tang Tinku you know, enabled like trade, I mean, enabled other things too, like colonialism, <laughs> but, um, the, but th this was something that allowed, like, allowed people to make their livelihoods. And often the, the language use is usually neglected or viewed in a negative light. Um, like oftentimes you'll hear Chinese pidgin English being caricatured in the media, um, like in representations of um, Chinese um, individuals in the past. I mean, Pidgin English, it's not unique to the region in China either. Like European trading and political con conquests throughout Africa and Asia um, from the 16th century on like created an environment where like there was this need for intercultural communication um, and it was a common thing to create different types of Pidgin language. These languages of like with the mixed sources are usually depicted as marginal like baby talk or corrupted versions of their European counterparts but you know what it sh actually shows is that the people who um, engaged with each other had to um, negotiate and make compromises on the spot about how to communicate with each other um, so there was room for innovation there for how to how to communicate. What a remarkable collection. Thank you, Suzanne. And thank you all. I've learned so much from each presentation. And I don't know about you, but I now have a growing list of collections I am just dying to see. As we conclude the second installment of this episode, I'd like to close us out by asking a couple of questions. Recognizing the items you discussed. First, is there anyone you would like to thank or acknowledge? And second, what do you find important about working with language-based material? What can listeners take away from this? 
Okay, I, I would like to thank to the group. I mean, you have been a fantastic group. Uh, even when I've been having, you know, in the, I've been in the process of moving to a, from one state to another state, from one job to another job. You've been very understanding and accommodating. So that I thank you. Nobody has come to say, like, you're not producing what you have to. And you have uh, waited for me. I would like to thank the staff at the Kenneth Spencer Research Library for their valuable help and for getting me materials in short notice. It's uh, really greatly appreciated. Now, what, what is the biggest takeaway, um, especially when it comes to languages and counter-narratives? Language is a social practice. And as a social practice, some things can be foregrounded and some other things can be back, uh, putting in the back. It is important that us as librarians foreground experiences where language has been put in the back burner. And as a social practice also, it can promote change. And that's extremely important to recognize. I'd like to thank and recognize the central team for all of your hard work individually and recognize each of the work that you do individually at your institutions and with your collections. I'd also like to acknowledge my special collections and archives team who supports me when I ask for information and helps me with my research. Um, and all HBCU collection staff who day in and day out provide access to significantly important African and African American materials and the importance of language-based materials is to expand our understanding of culture, of history, of memory, and to counter the narratives that people have around certain cultures and certain places and spaces. And I hope that more scholars, more community, more researchers, whoever you are, will choose to come to institutions like Fisk to pull from these narratives and these stories and, and do more studying and scholarship and all of the things so that we can be a better human race. I too would like to offer gratitude and appreciation for my colleagues featured on this episode, as well as the other episodes of this podcast series. I am easily inspired by the collections I encounter and work with. And in this case, I see the collections we've talked about today as a charge for documentation. We can take it upon ourselves to do the work of recording our history, our language, our experiences for us, by us. We don't need to rely on external forces and sources to do this work. It really does start with the individual. Each of the narratives or counter narratives that surface from the collections we've talked about wouldn't be here without someone from the community recognizing their value and their importance and doing that important work. And that's a charge we can take with us as we move towards a better future. So firstly, I'd like to thank my colleagues on this podcast group um, for all the work that they put into the um, episode and also to the larger um, working group of our fellowship um, coordinating uh, all of our podcast episodes. Um, it's been a great experience. This was a new thing for me. <laughs> this was a very new experience for me. So um, I'm grateful to have had it, especially with you all. 
Secondly, I would like to recognize in the context of the materials that I spoke about being um, Ottoman um, publication, I'd like to recognize the people of Turkey and Syria um, who just recently have been struck with the tragedy of um, a series of terrible earthquakes um, that have now led to tens of thousands um, losing their lives. And so I would just like to dedicate the work that I've done on this to the people of southern Turkey and northwest Syria, particularly the Kahraman Marash area and the memory of their lives and everything that the people in these regions have um, contributed to the world. In terms of what listeners can take away from what I've shared, what I would like for everyone to bear in mind as they go forward with their lives at, at any point in their lives, really. Um, I think this is especially the case for students, but we all have the opportunity, I think, to reflect on sort of fears that we might have of approaching the cultural heritage, cultural production of others that, you know, because we don't know anything about X, Y, or Z, we might be afraid to really engage with something. So for example, there are lots of people in the world who don't know Ottoman Turkish. (laughs) That's not, you know, one of the more commonly taught languages. um, And that, you know, that's just how it is. But that doesn't mean that people who don't know Ottoman Turkish can't engage with this particular magazine and appreciate the cartoons that are in it um, and the messages that they're trying to get across. And so what I'd love listeners to take away from this is that there is more to approach in special collections and archives than simply information conveyed in words the material items themselves being able to have that interaction with something so special, something old, something representative is unique and um, remarkable in and of itself. And that there's more to language um, than being able to read words on the page. Um, As I said, even folks in the early 20th century in Istanbul who were interacting with this magazine, they couldn't read it. A lot of them couldn't read it, but they still appreciated the cartoons, shared them widely, talked about them, and they were these cartoons were at the center of many of their conversations in their social settings. So just because you don't know about something doesn't mean you shouldn't try to know um, or try to interact and engage. Um, so I, I hope listeners will take that away from what I've shared. I would like to thank uh, my colleagues um, in the Central Podcast Group uh, for their collegiality, for their support um, throughout this whole process. It was so much fun uh, working with you and learning about your collections. Yeah, this was my first time doing a podcast as well. Yeah, it was, it was such a great group to do to do it with. I, um, I would also like to thank um, the Greater Podcast Working Group um, for the Rarebook School Cultural Heritage Fellowship um, in helping to put this together. I would also like to thank uh, my colleague and friend Aiko Takazawa, who's a postdoctoral fellow at um, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Uh, she was helped me as a soundboard as I was thinking through uh, what I wanted to talk about um, for my piece. I would like listeners to take away from this is that knowledge creation and organization like that happens outside of like formal elite structures it, uh, are valid in, in their existence and are worthy of study. They're worthy of 
uh, being collected and examined. That is, you know, a part of our work to document and preserve um, these materials to be more representative of the greater historical record. Um, and I, I feel so honored to be doing this work. And I encourage people who are listening to visit special collections um, like the ones that each of us work at, works at, um, see yourselves in the archives and, or like push, uh, you know, or uh, like help curators maybe identify materials that could speak to their experience that they like to see um, in, in these collections. I would like to end with a quote uh, from Kanaka Maoli philosopher Manu Lani Aluli Meyer, uh, who asserts that specificity leads to universality. And so understanding the distinctiveness, um, you know, between language, between cultures, leads us to appreciate how we are all the same differently. That was beautiful, y'all. And Suzanne, what a quote. I wrote that down. Specificity leads to universality. That's That's got some weight to it. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. And that wraps up our talk today on counter narratives and this episode of We Were Never Silent, Language as Counter Narrative. We want to thank all of our hosts and guests for being with us today. This episode was brought to you by Rare Book School, the Mellon Foundation, the entire podcast groups across three different time zones, Ali Alvis, book historian and cataloger at Type Punch Matrix, and our podcast media consultant, Kelsey Brown. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Counter Narratives. Until next time, take care. It's